Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. We're your hosts, Cody Sims and Hannah Davis. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Well, this is our very first episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, and I couldn't be happier to have Dr. Kamal Kapadia, the co-founder of the online climate change school, Terra.do, here to walk us through really a broad-based overview of what's going on in the climate space. We're going to talk about exactly what is going on with our planet, what will our lives look like in 20 years, and who will be most affected. Some of the biggest, hardest, meatiest problems to solve and how can technologies and policies help solve these problems. And looking at the role that entrepreneurs have to play in helping us get through the challenges ahead of us. We're gonna talk about everything from decarbonization to climate justice. And Kamal, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. With Terra.do, you're inspiring hundreds and aspirationally thousands of people to not only learn about climate change, but also to take action, the do part of Terra.do. So why don't you just in briefly 30 seconds or more introduce the work you're doing with Terra.do and let's dive in. Thanks so much, Cody. And I just want to say at the start how delighted I am to be here. So thank you for having me on your podcast. So Terra.do, we are a global climate talent on-ramp. So what does that mean? We come at the climate problem with a bottom-up approach. Because in order to reinvent our economy to be climate safe, we need millions of people also rethinking their careers and jobs. So we make all of this possible by, first of all, offering courses and training for people to learn about how to solve climate change effectively. Secondly, we enable networking with each other and with climate experts. So everybody who takes our courses has access to this amazing community of people. And lastly, we create pathways for climate work through things like our career services and our climate careers fair. But that's what we're about at Terra. Fantastic. And you obviously well know this, but just for the listeners' benefit, I'm a proud alum of Terra. I was in the very first cohort and it was absolutely transformational for me. Excited to have you on here with this being our first episode of this podcast to really have you just set the overall context for us around climate change. And I think with that, with this being our first episode, let's get straight into things. What is the state of our climate today? It's a huge, broad, crazy question, but really, how has it changed in the last 100 years since? pre-industrial times, and how do we know this? So first, I'm going to give you the slightly unscientific answer, which is the state of our climate is pretty dire, but we still have a window to turn the ship around. Let's now talk a little bit more scientifically. So what do we actually know? Let's first start with our main greenhouse gas of concern, which is carbon dioxide. And we'll talk a little bit about why we care about carbon dioxide as well. So scientifically, we know that while global carbon dioxide levels fluctuate naturally, we actually can go back way further than the Industrial Revolution now. And we know that over the last 800,000 years, we have not actually exceeded concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of 300 parts per million. Whereas today in 2020, carbon dioxide concentrations stand at 415 parts per million. So in fact, the last time carbon dioxide levels were this high, around 400 parts per million, was more than 3 million years ago. And just to give you some context of what that was like, the temperatures were 2 to 3 degrees Celsius warmer than they are today. And sea levels were 15 to 25 meters higher than today. 
So that should give us some pause. The last time we were at this level of this greenhouse gas, and of course, greenhouse gases are the main reason we're experiencing climate change because they effectively trap heat close to the earth. So that's why we care about greenhouse gases. I think of them as like a big wet blanket encircling the earth, basically. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Where are we at right now? Right now, we are already, because we have higher greenhouse gas levels, we are already around 1.2 to 1.3 degrees Celsius. That's about two degrees Fahrenheit higher than pre-industrial. So we are already over a degree Celsius higher than pre-industrial. And we also know that this increase in global average temperature is not experienced evenly across the world. So for example, in the Arctic is warming six times faster than average. And that's a problem because it contributes to sea level rise and causes all kinds of other problems as well. So the other thing to also keep in mind is that we're not just tracking temperature and greenhouse gas levels. The global scientific community is actually tracking 54 climate variables globally. So everything from sea surface temperatures to the albedo of the earth, which is how reflective the earth is, to coral reef distribution and health. We are actually measuring changes and we are able to connect these changes to increases in global temperature and to increasing carbon dioxide levels. And so we know that all of these systems are changing. Now we can actually measure the fingerprint of climate change on things that we are experiencing and living through in our local context. So say, for example, like the California wildfires or Atlantic hurricanes, there's this new science of extreme event attribution where they're able to ask this question whether and to what extent did climate change actually alter the frequency and intensity of a given event. And we're able to say things like actually the Western U.S. wildfires, 50% of the area burned can actually be attributed to climate change. That sort of really brings it home because you can actually now say that things that we are living through and experiencing in our own lives, in our own contexts, are connected to climate change. You mentioned multiple times things like one degrees, two degrees, one and a half degrees. First of all, as Americans, we often fall down when we're even thinking about Celsius, because I know those terms are all in Celsius. But secondly, those terms feel esoteric to people, I think. Can you maybe help paint a little bit about what are some of the actual scenarios we're facing? Bottom line, what do we expect the world to look like in 10 years, 25 years, 50 years on our current path? I'm going to have to say a little bit more in Celsius, but we can even do the math and convert it into Fahrenheit approximately. On the path that we are on right now, we are expecting to hit about 3 to 3.7 degrees Celsius of warming, say in the next 50 years or so. That's for rule of thumb calculation. So what does that actually mean? What does that mean in terms of what we're going to experience? And I'm going to borrow a little bit from a presentation given by Chip Fletcher, Dr. Charles Fletcher, who is a climate scientist at the University of Hawaii, and he's a great friend of Terra, and he always comes and does this amazing climate science talk. He talks about how at around three degrees Celsius of warming, one in three people are going to live in places that are literally too hot to inhabit. So they're going to have the same conditions as the interior of the Sahara. About 20% of the Earth's surface is likely to experience this when we're talking about average global temperature increase around 3 degrees. And so what does that actually mean? That actually means that in, in such conditions, a person in the shade with water is not going to last very long. Like they can't survive. So we're talking about uninhabitable conditions across 20% of the Earth's surface. That's just temperature increase alone. The other thing that's, of course, a source of great concern is global sea level rise. We've already seen a sea level rise of around eight to nine inches since 1880, with about a third of that happening just in the last two and a half decades. 
in many locations along the U.S. coastline, high tide flooding is now 300% to more than 900% more frequent than it was 50 years ago. Again, what does this mean for the future? So even if we follow a low greenhouse gas pathway, so even if we actually bring emissions down substantially, global sea level rise is likely to go up by at least about 12 inches by 2100. So over the next 100 years, they're saying at least a 12-inch sea level rise. And if you follow a pathway of high emissions, a worst-case scenario of as much as 2.5 meters, so that's eight feet of sea level rise, by 2100 can't be ruled out. So this is not three generations down the road. This is stuff that's happening like in our respective lifetimes. Yes, exactly. And then another thing that we really care about is also disasters, right? So like in the U.S., we've had another record disaster year for disasters that have cost over a billion dollars. We've had 22 major natural disasters in 2020. We're already experiencing major impacts of climate change. And if we just continue on the current emissions trajectory, where things are going to get pretty dire. As you said, not even necessarily that far out in the future. And that's a path we're on today, though it seems like right now there's a lot of initiatives to try to change our path and put us on a different path. That's the path I would say we've been on, but hopefully we can bend that curve. So I guess I would ask you, and coming at it with really an entrepreneurial lens, given that there's a lot of startup founders and everything, everybody listening to this, are you optimistic or or pessimistic? Do you see us changing off our current path to something less awful, I would say? Or is everything bad and it's a matter of degrees of less bad? Where's the hope in there for innovation, for entrepreneurs, for founders to help us shift the path that we're on to something that can continue to sustain some degree of life as we know? Or is are we talking this is going to be an incredibly hard lift all the way around regardless? I am an optimist. Don't ask me why. <laughs> Actually, I will explain why. But I am an optimist, <laughs> even if it feels irrational. Because honestly, otherwise, why are we all here? Why are we even having this conversation? I should be off right. somewhere in northern Canada, like building my bunker and trying to grow my own, own food. I'm because I'm an optimist and I I believe that we can really make a difference. And I'm an optimist because of things I notice and see. Big picture stuff, first of all. Just the fact that we now finally have an administration in the U.S. that's taking climate change seriously is a huge reason for optimism because the U.S. is like basically the largest player in the room when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and globally, that is. And just getting the U.S. on board, just back onto the Paris Accord. And if you go to the White House priorities page, you'll see that the top two priorities of the administration are getting the pandemic under control and fighting climate change. So that itself is a source of huge optimism. And in fact, on Twitter recently, there was an interesting conversation between some leading climate scientists about The fact that if the U.S. really can seriously move the needle forward on climate action, we are within spitting distance of 1.5 C. And 1.5 degrees Celsius is what is generally considered like the safe climate threshold. So just getting serious action in the U.S. alone is going to make a big difference, especially because so many other nations now are also making net zero or climate neutral commitments. So several big countries are actually also taking taking similar steps. So that's one reason that I'm optimistic. But I'm also just really optimistic because I fundamentally believe in human capacity for innovation. And I believe in this because I have seen and lived it myself. So I actually got my start in the late 1990s in a solar startup in the UK. It was actually the first straight solar retail company just trying to sell directly to consumers in the UK. It's called Solar Century. When we got started, there was no policy context at all. In fact, when we were trying to sell to customers, the utility wouldn't even allow the customers to connect to the grid because there was no standard even for a grid to connect. 
And so as a single company, we literally had to push for the policies. We also didn't have people who knew how to install solar panels. So we literally had to create the training programs to train people to install solar panels. And so from this one company, a whole policy environment developed, a whole world of trained installers was created. And so much innovation was unleashed just from starting something, just starting a company. I've seen this all over the world, like in many places. And so I just really fundamentally believe in human capacity for innovation, because look at where we are now with solar. It's basically the cheapest form of electricity out there. The other thing I really believe in is human capacity for resilience. I actually think that as a species, we are pretty good at being resilient. It's how we've gotten here in the first place. But also this kind of comes from another experience I've had where the other startup experience I had, again, many years ago was with another solar company in a completely different context. So I worked for this company called Selco. It's now just called Selco India. But back then, uh, we worked in three countries, India, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam. And what we did was rural electrification with decentralized solar. So we went into places Mm -hmm. where they didn't have access to grid electricity, and we installed uh, solar systems for people to to have access to electricity. And so I I lived in Sri Lanka, actually, for, for a few years. And at the time, in Sri Lanka, there was a civil war. So I actually yeah, had wow. a civil That's war yeah, for there. 25 years. Exactly. Yeah, during the war. Wow. And it just was amazing that not only were we building a company in this context and going out and selling this stuff, but also I just really got a very embodied understanding of how resilient people are and how resilient societies can be. And in fact, when the war ended, how fast things could recover. So I just have this fundamental belief in human capacity for resilience. So for those reasons, I am an optimist. And I think it's a bit touch and go, but I I feel like there's enough signs out there. And just given, again, our capacity for innovation and resilience, I'm hopeful. It's a totally different field in a different context, but seeing how fast when the global community puts their mind to something, I think this the vaccine for COVID is a good example, how fast science and technology can advance something when there is that much attention and pressure on it. And it feels like climate change and the climate problem is moving to that degree of urgency in many people's minds right now. Then you have to fix the, the political system of actually implementing whatever technologies are created, which is its own whole host of problems. One of the things I'd, I'd love to really get your thoughts on, and you could probably spend hours addressing this, What are the big things that need to happen? You talked about decentralized grid and rural solar rollouts. Where do we really need to make the changes and which ones are the most impactful? I hear terms like electrify everything, hear terms like regenerative agriculture and rethinking our agricultural systems, terms like circular economy and rethinking manufacturing. Obviously, there's been a ton of innovation in transportation, moving to an electric vehicle platform over combustion engines. Maybe help us unpack some of those key terms. And really, again, since our audience here is founders, what are the biggest problems that need to get solved over the coming decade in order to get all of this right? You've basically touched on all of the important ones. The one good thing about being this far in some sense into the problem is that we do see emerging consensus now on many of these solutions. So for a long time, for example, in transportation, we were unsure whether the answer is going to be biofuels or hydrogen-powered cars or electric cars. And now we just see this global consensus around mainly electrification of vehicles with possibly hydrogen you know, and biofuels playing a much smaller role. So let's just start with that first one you talked about, which is electrify everything. What does electrify everything mean? It basically means in addition to just you know whatever we're already 
running on electricity. We need to get all of transport or as much of transport as we can onto electricity. And that even includes things like short haul aviation. There's a lot of innovation even on that front that they're actually putting Mm -hmm. out planes now that can do short hops on electric batteries. So you want to get as much of transport as we can onto electricity. And we also want to get buildings as far as possible. Things that are currently run on natural gas for heating, everything from your stoves to just your space heating. We want to electrify that as well. And then, of course, the other side of this is that as you're electrifying, we want to make the grid as clean as possible. So you want to generate all of your electricity from clean energy sources, mainly solar, wind, storage, and then hydrogen is going to have to play some role as well. And then also like location specific, if you have geothermal energy in some places or tidal energy, you can use those as well. But solar and wind will basically be the main players. And then in order to make all of this happen, we have to build the smart grid. And the smart grid is basically the way in which we're going to make this work. Because as we know, solar and wind are intermittent resources. Sometimes the sun shines, sometimes the wind blows, other times it doesn't. Storage, even though the cost of storage are coming down phenomenally, it's still relatively expensive to store electricity. And so to the extent that you can use electricity when it's being produced, it just makes for a cheaper system. And you've got to build out a new grid, which really is heavily reliant on technology, where, for example, your washing machine at home is now communicating directly with the grid and it's getting a signal to turn on when, say, there's uh, excess solar energy coming online. And so you know, your washing machine can basically come on and absorb that extra solar and just makes for a more efficient system. It's almost the movement from classic top-down media era to a social media era where information is flowing both directions, right? Energy is being produced at the source, going back to the grid and coming back to the source. So I I can produce from my own solar panels, send it back to the grid and then can use it when needed versus just a central utility only pushing things to me one way. That's exactly right. And honestly, this is not just a massive shift in technology, but it also requires a massive shift in our regulatory structures and in just a mindset, right? Because utilities traditionally have been used to uh, controlling large power plants and bringing them online or bringing them offline as and when needed. And reliability is really their job to make sure that you have electricity at every moment. And so they take reliability as a very sort of serious responsibility. There's the point of production, there's the point of distribution, there's transmission work to be done, there's the AI and machine learning around routing, there's businesses and services to be built around servicing all of those companies because they work in a different way than traditional energy companies have. And then there's a bunch of small businesses to be built on, I assume, around actually doing the installation work and the retrofitting work and all of that. And that's just one of these sectors we talked about, right? Like agriculture is its whole other thing that, think about it today, our crops are harvested via giant gas-powered machines. The agricultural market is also very tied to the fossil fuel economy today in a way that I think has to also change quite dramatically. You're absolutely right. And in fact, even just focusing back on energy for a second, we just talked about electricity, but then there's also just all of the electrification of transport and all the innovation that needs to happen there around charging infrastructure and optimal location of charging infrastructure and just better batteries, better ways to recycle batteries, better ways of mining for lithium, more efficient ways of getting lithium. So in the whole supply chain, just so many opportunities for innovation. And then the other thing, at least coming at it from a jobs perspective, in some sense, the sleeper success story of clean energy is actually energy efficiency. And it doesn't get enough mentioned because it's not hot and sexy like solar 
But energy efficiency retrofitting, for example, is a huge area for creating jobs, creating fairly decent paying jobs, contractors, and just people who do the retrofits. It's just a win-win, like efficiency, just putting in better insulation, having triple glazed windows. One of the real success stories around the world has been replacing basically incandescent light bulbs with LEDs. And we've done that in a really shockingly short amount of time. Like over 20 years, we went from incandescent to CFL to LEDs. And that's a huge success story in efficiency. That's just another kind of area where there's potential for innovation. And now, of course, it's broader than just efficiency. We talk about green buildings. And there's a lot of technological innovation that goes into just managing the energy of a building efficiently as well. Just very quickly touching on a few of the other solutions, stopping tropical deforestation. Okay, so people talk about land use change and there's all kinds of important things we need to be doing, growing our forests and having more forests and rethinking agriculture, et cetera. But I just want to spend one second talking about tropical deforestation. There was a new paper that I just saw in the journal Science Advances, and it's written by Yadwinda Mali, Dr. Yadwinda Mali, who's a professor at University of Oxford, and he's one of the leading global scientists on tropical forests and carbon. And they found that the carbon impact of intact tropical forest loss is actually six times higher than previously estimated. Just completely stopping tropical deforestation can have just a huge impact on climate because not only are they amazing reservoirs of carbon and you can't really get to the same level of carbon sequestration with just reforesting, but also they are just incredible biodiversity hotspots and When we lose tropical forests, we also just send a whole bunch of species to extinction. It's just a reminder that over the last century, not only have we basically created quote unquote progress by burning everything in sight, by, you know, leveraging fossil fuels and oils and everything to drive our economy forward. But we've done so while at the same time, basically removing the earth's lungs. We've cut down forests, we're managing coral reefs. Etc. So it's it's a double whammy effect, right? In that exactly. you're and you know melting polar ice caps are reducing reflectivity. There's a, this big double whammy of both of these things happening at the same time. Exactly, and the problems are interconnected because, say, tropical forest loss in the Amazon. So much of it is connected to deforestation in order to create land for ranching. And to the extent that we can reduce meat consumption, we can reduce those pressures as well. So the problems are interconnected. One last thing I'll just quickly touch upon here because there's many other things we could talk about, but I just want to spend a second on carbon removal, carbon sequestration, because Elon Musk just announced the big $100 million prize and there's a lot of excitement. And it's important to note that carbon removal is going to have to be a part of the solution. Given the fact that we have delayed, we have delayed acting on climate change for so long now, we are at this point where... Every single scenario that has us staying within a safe, you know, a climate safe temperature of 1.5 degrees Celsius involves what they call negative emissions. And that means carbon removal. But at the same time, it is not a substitute for mitigation. So that's the really important thing to know that it is not a substitute for mitigation. We cannot get to it at the scale that is necessary and, and still keep emitting and think we can fix the problem with sequestration. So while it is part of the solution, it is not by any means the main solution. So we still have to reduce emissions as fast as we can everywhere. It feels like the carbon capture and storage got a bad rep early on just because a lot of the funding for that was by oil and gas as a way to offset their immediate production and exploration of more oil and gas. But exactly. in reality now... As you said, there's so much CO2 and CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. 
that we not only need to start to mitigate producing more of it, we need to proactively remove it from the air and from the atmosphere by any means possible, whether that's through direct air capture or other means, not just using carbon capture as a way to offset oil and gas production. It needs to be an all hands on deck endeavor. Exactly. The basic rule of thumb is we need to reduce our emissions by 50% by 2030. So that used to be a decade away. Now it's nine years away. And then we need to go to net zero basically by 2050. And so you've talked about reduction, which is removing carbon from the air. You've talked about mitigation, which is producing less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And then the other term I hear being discussed a lot is that of adaptation, which is, I think, helping people deal with the fact that the world is changing no matter what, no matter how good we are at mitigation and no matter how good we are at reduction, the world is changing around them. You mentioned, was it some 20% of the world will basically become uninhabitable over the next few decades? Break down the sort of the notion of adaptation for me a little bit. What does that mean when you hear people talking about climate adaptation? Adaptation at its simplest is just helping people live with climate change. And I I like to think more in terms of building resilience. I I like this idea of resilience more than adaptation, because I think of it as a Hmm. capacity not only to survive, but maybe even to thrive in the context of change. And the other thing also I feel is, yes, adaptation and mitigation are two completely separate things, but there are interesting ways in which they connect as well. And so there are these win-win solutions where you can be achieving mitigation and adaptation at the same time. So for example decentralized electricity through, you know, solar panels on people's roofs is also a way of kind of building a more resilient electricity infrastructure. Uh, So people now talk about microgrids where you have parts of the grid can disconnect from other parts of the grid really easily and still be functional, say, when a tropical storm hits or a cyclone hits and it's taking out part of your grid. And we can avoid situations like we saw in Puerto Rico with the hurricane by just having decentralized solar-based energy systems. The other sort of interesting example of this is this idea of cool roofs, where they say if you paint your roof white, it's just cooler in your house, and therefore you also just reduce the amount of energy you need to cool your space in hot places. Mm. The other thing that I people don't really think about, but I feel is that's really important, and it connects to the topic of climate justice a little bit, is the fact that mitigation can be a way of building decent livelihoods. So as we build these new climate economies, if we can create decent livelihoods, in some sense, that's almost the best form of adaptation, right? If you create well-paying jobs and you provide people access to free education and skills training in order to do the work that we need to get to a climate-safe future, uh, and you provide decent benefits, that itself is a form of adaptation, like building economic security. The topic of adaptation really helps me realize that those who may need to quote unquote adapt are to change are, are often not the ones responsible for actually the fact that our planet is changing in the first place. And the have nots, if you will, are often facing the most dire consequences of climate change. Just generally talk about the notion of climate justice and how that ties into everything we've talked about so far today. I'm happy to talk about climate justice. It's actually, you know, my favorite topic to talk about. I think the first thing when we think about climate justice is to take a bit of a global perspective. And so there is massive global inequity in terms of who has contributed the most to this problem and where people are suffering the most. And so that's a well-known established fact. Connected to that fact is the reality that the global transfer of funds is woefully inadequate. So there's nowhere near enough money being pledged in order to address some of these imbalances. And the main mechanism for this is something called the Green Climate Fund that was set up by the UN. 
And it was supposed to raise $100 billion by 2020. And as of February 2020, a grand total of $8 billion was actually confirmed. So far, we're so far off in terms of addressing global equity issues and funding things like adaptation, etc. But just coming back to this question of what we can do in order to advance climate justice, I am a huge fan of this kind of new economic paradigm that's called donut economics, this idea that has been developed by Kate Broward. And she asks this really important question and she says, how can your business or city or country or whatever it is, how can it be both regenerative and redistributive by design? How can you build a business that's both not just fixing environmental problems, but actually allowing nature to thrive as well as helping people at the same time live better lives. So how can your business be both regenerative and redistributive by design? And so this would be my challenge to everybody out there who's starting up a business right now. Because when we talk about clean tech and sort of the whole startup world, obviously we're all in it to fix climate change, but we're paying less attention, I think, to the justice side of things. So I think it's just a good time for all of us to start thinking as businesses or as funders, what is it that we can do to make businesses both regenerative and redistributive by design? I feel like the 21st century here is all about how do we collectively and collaboratively build toward a future. And that, I feel like the startup ecosystem, as often as it sometimes gets a a bad name for being very capitalistic and very focused on growth at all costs, I actually think the notion of give first and collaboratively working together and helping out other entrepreneurs is part of that ethos. It's part of this notion of how can we work together to try to improve the future. And I'm hopeful that starting in 2021, founders also start to think about how is my company helpful to the planet? How is my company helpful to the notion of social justice and climate justice, given some of the challenges we lived through in 2020 and that many people have lived through for much longer longer than just the last year? So the last question is, what's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor? Well, I feel like I already gave that advice, which is, can you also think about climate justice as you think about your endeavors? Yeah. I, I feel like that would be my one big piece of advice would be like, can you think about redistributive by design as well, in addition to being regenerative by design? But the other thing I also would say is that climate change is this huge problem, but it's not the only environmental problem we're facing. And in, in many ways, in other parts of the world, other problems are dominating and actually intersect with climate. So I think about local air pollution in a country like India, where there's so much potential for innovation. Think about these intersectional problems as well, especially if you are in other contexts where there's just much more pressing problems like in people's faces and are there ways in which you can simultaneously address those problems while also taking on climate change. It's such an honor to have you on here. You're doing really incredible work with Terra.do and we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today about this incredibly massive problem that we're all working to try to do our best to fight and hopefully help us all build a better future. Thank you so much, Cody. And the last thing I'll say is if any of you out there are curious and want to learn more, we really welcome you at Terra.do and hope to see you in our community too. Thanks so much for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussions. If you're a founder working in climate tech and sustainability, we invite you to check out the Techstar Sustainability Challenge, where we bring together founders and industry leaders to build out real world solutions. 
Also, applications are open until May 16th for our Techstar Sustainability Accelerator in partnership with The Nature Conservancy. Check out the episode notes for links and more information. See you in the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.